Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here at Cato. Thanks to Cato for organizing this great conference, and thanks to you for being here this afternoon on the afternoon of the second day of this conference. I, uh, I can understand that there is some conference fatigue. And thank you also for being here after lunch and being awake. I'm quite impressed. Usually after lunch, all my blood's in my stomach, and I'm not exactly alert. Um, I'm uh, very happy to be here to talk about this issue, which sounds very geeky and uh, maybe a little boring, but is not at all. Um, responsibility for protection, federal, state, local, private, and personal. Um, I might have like a conference title sounding, as I said, a little geeky, but think about it this way. I have the coolest panel. I have a captain, a chief of police, and a tsar. So... Bear with me. It's going to be great. Exactly. Your mites are. Yes. Um, anyway, so this morning, the first session talked about the way to think about how to spend the money at the federal level. I mean, I, we didn't actually use the word federal level, but how we should be thinking about allocating spending. And that's a very important way, um, uh, way to think of things. And um, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be happening that much. Uh, we came out of that conference thinking about cost-benefit analysis was a good thing, and uh, risk management was a very good thing. Strategic thinking was a very good thing. One, I see this panel of the very important second part of this question, which is cost-benefit analysis and risk management gives us a fantastic tool to think of who are the best players to address the risk that we face or the non-risk that we face. Who should be paying for the counterterrorism uh, measures that we might put, put in place. And this, unfortunately, is an issue that really is, is, is not part of the debate at all. And certainly, even in the think tank community, there's just not a lot of debate around this. And certainly in Washington, one of the things that we've seen and around the country is an assumption that the federal government should be taking over most of the response. And, of course, the states and local government, um, you know, are more than happy. Look at what's happening with the bailout. Now, now you have all the mayor lining up for uh, federal uh, spending. And this is, I guess, um, you know, maybe a rational response on their part, but maybe it's not the most productive and mo not the most way to achieve security in the U.S., to talk about this issue for us, we have three very important people. First, we have Captain Ross, who's been for 30 years in the Coast Guard and who is currently serving as the Chief Risk Science Branch in the Office of Special Programs in the Department of Homeland Security. You can find his, uh, his uh, bio online. Second, we have Ed Flynn, who is a chief police of Milwaukee. See, Captain, chief of Milwaukee. And... Very importantly, Ed was the chief of police in Arlington in Virginia during the 9-11 attack. And so he led the response um, to after the attack on the Pentagon, a response which I was told was actually very effective and which when I learned, I was kind of intrigued considering of how much money we've been spending on building response capacity and, and anyway, when we could have learned from... Uh, Chief Flynn. Finally, we'll have uh, Matt Mayer, my Tsar. Um, 
And uh, Matt is the president of Provisio Strategy. He's an adjunct professor also at Ohio State University and a visiting fellow with the Heritage Foundation. But I call him a czar for a reason. He was a grand czar at DHS when I started working on these issues. And we were crossing swords and fighting like through every medium we could find. But now we're friends and all this. And, um, and like his exact title was... Uh, he has served as the policy and operation counsel to the deputy secretary and as the head, sorry, head of domestic terrorism preparedness in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Please, round of applause for our speaker. Thank you, Vera. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Chris and Jim and uh, Ben and all the others involved in setting this. No, I'm fine. You can hear me, right? Um, putting this uh, event together, it's been an incredible uh, two days. Um, been thinking about a lot of these issues for eight years, and I'm a lot smarter now than I was uh, when I came here Monday morning. The views I'm going to present are personal views. They should not be uh, misconstrued as representing the official views of the Department uh, of Homeland Security or any other agency of government. This uh, event is actually quite timely because uh, of a recent uh, terrorist uh, intelligence uh, pronouncement that's been made. The current issue of The Onion, terror experts warn the next 9-11 could fall on a different date. So keep that, keep that thought in mind. If I don't lose my track, lose my place in my notes, I'm going to come back to this. When Vero asked me to talk about the responsibility for protection, federal, state, and so forth, I quickly asked her, what do you mean by protection? And then while she uh, was drafting a response, uh, I decided, I don't care what she means. I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about. And... So I'm going to kind of segue into talking about the full spectrum of protection running from, uh, you know, prevent, protect, prepare, respond, or any other set of words that capture that spectrum that uh, fit your particular uh, vocabulary. But I want to talk about a very specific aspect of that spectrum, something I have a lot of personal experience with having lived in South Dade County when Hurricane Andrew hit having been the uh, federal on-scene coordinator for the biggest U.S. oil spills since the Exxon Valdez and some other uh, significant events, uh, I want to talk about response. And I want to talk about the five levels of response, similar to the five levels that uh, Vero uh, put into the title for this session. And I want to start with the individual or family. That's where it has to start. That's the be ready to survive for 72 hours minimum without uh, outside assistance, food and water, the 14-day uh, uh, medical uh, uh, comment that the gentleman in the back made earlier. It has to start at the individual and family level. People have to be responsible for themselves, at least to a degree. Certainly, there's limits on what individuals can do. The next level up in this hierarchy is the neighborhood or the community in the non-governmental sense of that word. It's people coming together after the storm has passed, joining efforts to clear their streets, 
those kind of things, helping neighbors dig themselves out of the rubble uh, and so forth. The next level up is the for-profit non-governmental entities. And here I'm thinking about utility companies with their uh, mutual aid compacts and so forth, uh, Walmarts and Home Depots and others who do in fact respond but are in, the, in a business. They're not gouging, they're, but they are in a business. They want to uh, be good members of the community and so forth, but they also have a business continuity interest. The next level up would be the not-for-profit NGOs, whether they have an official role uh, such as the Red Cross, which operates under a, a congressional uh, uh, sanction, or church groups or other kinds of uh, interest groups that uh, respond. They don't have an obligation, but they do respond. And then finally, the fifth level, and here I've lumped three, three of them together, actually, is the official or government level, and that can be the local and state and federal, and depending on the scenario, um, one or more of those levels of government. All five levels of response will happen in the aftermath of a big event. All five levels are critical. They can work at cross purposes, but it's best when they're coordinated. And in order to achieve that coordination, you need things like workable concepts of operations, adequate statutory frameworks. Responsibilities need to be clearly assigned. And there has to be a shared understanding of who's going to do what and so forth, and a shared understanding of how we're going to go about sequencing some things and so forth. Doesn't have to be perfect understanding, but there has to be some level of understanding that facilitates cooperation and communication across these uh, various entities. You need experienced response managers. A big disaster is no time for amateur hour. Coordinated planning. And I'm not talking about perfect plans written by a planner stuck in a closet. I'm talking about plans that are developed by the various members of the community working collaboratively and in the process building working relationships that will hopefully be strengthened in exercises uh, and so forth so that they're available to call on when they're needed. And shared situational awareness and common operating picture. Those are the things I think that are necessary to make these five levels of response work together. We're not there yet, unfortunately. Uh, a while back, New York Academy of Medicine uh, released a study called Redefining Readiness, Terrorism Planning Through the Eyes of the Public. It's available online, and if you pick up my slides, the web uh, addresses, uh, site is, address is in those slides. In this study, what, the, uh, what they did was they went into the, uh, I think it was chemical and biological or maybe biological and radiological uh, contingency plans, extracted out from those plans what the um, government spokesman was going to say from behind the podium after the event what people were supposed to do. They took the scenarios and that advice and went out on the street and just started talking to people. They gave them the scenario, they gave them the advice and asked them what they're going to do. Big difference. And there's a whole range of issues there associated with uh, invalid assumptions and planning and so forth that uh, I could go into at some other time if you want. But a couple of quotes out of that uh, report. 
people are more likely to follow official instructions when they have a lot of trust in what officials tell them to do and are confident that their community is prepared to meet their needs if a terrorist attack occurs. And later they say, only a tiny fraction of the American people know very much about the plans that are being developed in their communities. It's not a good commentary. A book that was released last summer, um, the title is The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why? It was written by a, a Time Magazine reporter, Amanda Ripley. Uh, it's um, full of data in the anecdotal sense. Um, it's a lot of case studies of various kinds of disasters, whether plane crashes, uh, World Trade Center uh, attacks, and so forth, and looking at who survived and why, and also who didn't survive, and what we can maybe discern about why that was. Uh, in the in the book, Amanda uh, pr proposes three phases in personal response to disasters or emergencies. Denial, deliberation, and then finally decision to act and action. In looking at instances where people could have survived and didn't, and instances where people could have survived and did, some of the things that pull out of this, lessons out of this, are... Uh, Advanced preparation and leadership are key. Uh, airplane safety briefings and flight attendant behavior. At a point, there was a point when there weren't very strong briefings and flight attendants had been told, always be polite. So plane has crash landed. They need to get out of the plane um, quickly before it bursts into flames. And the attendant is saying, please proceed to the exit. That doesn't work. At that point, they need drill instructors to say, get up, get out now, that kind of thing. They need leadership. It needs to be provided. Um, in the World Trade Center, uh, Morgan Stanley, um, there was a guy, uh, Rick Rascorla, retired Army colonel. Uh, after the 93 uh, failed bombing at the World Trade Center, he started doing some what-ifing and got really scared. And he instituted a program at Morgan Stanley where periodically he would make everybody in the company get up and leave the building using the stairs. In 9-11, over 2,000 Morgan Stanley employees in those buildings, they lost, I've heard two different numbers, three or six. One of them, unfortunately, was Colonel Rascora. But those people survived because they had been given information and they had been given some leadership. Another thing that Amanda's found is disproportionate survival rates for former military in these various uh, civil emergencies. People who have had some training, they are predisposed to uh, do the uh, assessment, uh, develop plan of action, and execute very quickly. I like to talk about what I call the pre-needs in the response arena. It's pre-need relationships between agencies, between government and the public. It's pre-need information, information on what the public believes and information given to the public on what they need to know. It's about pre-need planning. I've already talked a bit about that. Pre-need preparation of the battle space. Tailor the plans to the public and through advanced education, try and tailor the public to the plans. Um, 
improve public understanding of uh, and knowledge, what to expect and what to do. And finally, pre-need credibility created by all of the above and then available to exploit when needed. If you don't have credibility before the event, you're never going to build it during the event. I don't care how many press conferences you hold. With regard to credibility, this uh, Onion headline, and there's some good news and some bad news associated with this headline. The good news is that we've got some emotional distance from 9-11. We haven't had other events. We can laugh about this now. We've got enough emotional distance. Maybe some bad news associated with this is that Homeland Security still remains perhaps an object of ridicule in some circles. That's not a good thing. Some of these issues, these issues are real, and the agencies that are dealing with it need to have credibility, but they need to earn it. So if I look at the five levels of responsibility to protect federal, state, local, private sector, and personal, how am I doing time-wise? Yeah, you're good. Okay. All should be effective. All are critical. They can work at cross-purposes, and they're best when coordinated. I think that's uh, very similar to what I said earlier. And the things that are required to affect those kind of coordination are pretty much the same. Workable concepts of operations, adequate statutory frameworks, clear designations of responsibilities, uh, shared uh, understanding, uh, and so forth. So having set that out, I want to provide some thoughts on the kind of things that are appropriate at each level. And you're, I think there will be two big themes that come out of what I'm going to say here now. At the federal level, intelligence and information, standards, the, the um, national response system, the uh, national in incident management system is an example of a kind of standard that set at the federal level is available to make things easier to deal with across the nation. Uh, so as you're, you know, if you're dealing with a pickup team, uh, you at least understand some of the same language. Doctrine. You heard some comments earlier from Dr. Carafano about doctrine. The international and foreign aspects, I think, are clearly federal responsibilities. Heavy logistics. Um, some things it's just not cost-effective for every state or every major city to have certain kinds of things. We need it available on a national basis, and then you bring it where you need to uh, as quickly as you can. Uh, response backstop. The federal government has to be prepared to backstop responses at the state and local level when necessary. I'm not a big fan of federal lead on everything, but I'm not a, at all a fan of federal in capability when that capability is needed. Uh, there are some issues for which federal lead in the response phase is provided in law and is appropriate, but there's not many of those. And finally, I think the federal level should be re providing responsible leadership. At the state level, information, coordination across and oversight of subordinate jurisdictions, provisions for mutual aid compacts and so forth, response management backstop for the local level, uh, and again, responsible leadership. At the local level, information, effective law enforcement, fire, EMT, and other kinds of uh, services, realistic contingency plans, again, participation in mutual aid compacts, uh, responsible leadership. The private sector, information, 
appropriate physical and cybersecurity for own facilities and systems, business continuity plans, um, <clears throat> responsible leadership, and some followership. And at the personal level, situational awareness, uh, providing information to the authorities. We've had a number of instances where individual citizens see something that catches their attention, they report it to local law enforcement, which responds appropriately, it doesn't blow them off, they follow up, and we've thwarted some terrorist attacks uh, before 9-11 and since on the basis of fairly uh, vague reports by concerned citizens to law enforcement who took the concern seriously. Uh, preparation, you know, individual and family preparation. It's the go packs, the 72 hours uh, and so forth. Willingness to evacuate in those rare instances when evacuation is appropriate and is ordered. Responsible followership. So the two big themes out of that are information and leadership. I want to talk about a specific leadership challenge and it starts with uh, a comment that was made by a person claiming to be an IRA spokesman who called one of the newspapers after the Brighton uh, hotel bombing uh, when they tried to get uh, Prime Minister Thatcher during a Conservative Party convention. And they failed. They killed some people, did a lot of damage, injured uh, quite a few people. The caller said... We only have to be lucky once. You will have to be lucky always. I've heard that statement or paraphrases of that statement repeated um, a number of times uh, since 9-11. I would submit for your consideration that that is absolutely wrong. It's 180 degrees out. Think about what happened in Vietnam. In strictly conventional military terms, the U.S. bested the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army in conventional military terms in essentially every battle. In conventional military terms, the Tet Offensive was a disaster for the North Vietnamese Army. We won every battle, and they won the war. Here... Being unlucky once is losing a battle. It's not losing the war. We need to be the last ones standing after the last attack, not the first ones claiming to have failed abysmally after the next attack. We need to rethink our attitudes. It's about building some societal resilience. It's about being willing to get back on the bus about willing to go back in the tube in London. So some closing observations. Homeland Security uh, is still new. The National Security Act of 1947, uh, we're 61 years out, and we're still working on getting that right. We're only five years into the department. We still have a lot of intellectual heavy lifting and hard work that remains to be done. We lack lots of key definitions. We don't even have a good agreed definition on homeland security. We have a number of different definitions. Concepts of operations, adequate statutory basis for certain kinds of uh, activities, 
identifying and sustaining and satisfying sustainable capability requirements. Something needs to be done, I think, to manage public expectations with the specific objective of strengthening our resolve to stiffen our spines and so forth. Effective risk communications, strategies and messages, and many more issues. Um, but if this were easy, we would have already done it. Thank you. Thank you. you. Chief uh, Flynn. I didn't know it showed. Okay. Well, I, uh, I think my role here is to be a dose of reality in what has heretofore been a very interesting uh, theoretical discussion. Um, I did have the privilege on uh, September 11th of 2001 of being in command of the Arlington County Police Department, and one of the things we learned that day, if we learned anything, is what's now become a cliche, but bears repeating. Uh, terrorists may think globally, but when they act, they act locally. And when they act locally in the most decentralized governmental apparatus on planet Earth, it has been historically the response of local government to deal with the consequences. Now, there are some interesting uh, connections in my life. If you move enough, uh, you have probably fewer than six degrees of uh, separation from many events. I began my career um, after I graduated from college in the Jersey City Police Department. And I fast forward many years, and uh, I'm already in my first police chief's job, but my ex-partner, Paul Woolen, desk, desk lieutenant at the 4th Precinct, took a stolen van report one day in 1993 uh, that turned out to be recovered underneath the World Trade Center after it had exploded. Um, in 2001, as uh, my police department sifted through the rubble of the Pentagon with the FBI doing crime scene processing, uh, we recovered the remains of all of the terrorists. One of them, named Hani Hanjour, had a uh, receipt um, on him from Arlington County for a speeding ticket he had paid that we had issued him uh, several weeks before. I see a pattern here. The pattern here I see is this, that... Uh, before and during the terrorist attacks in America over the course of eight years, local government both interacted with terrorists and provided 100% of the response capacity. Since 9-11, uh, we have uh, been essentially cut out of the discussion of homeland security strategy. And I'm here to say that my last eight years as a chief executive both of police departments as well as been the Secretary of Public Safety in Massachusetts for nearly four years for Governor Mitt Romney, has been the most excruciating, frustrating experience of my life dealing with my federal partners. Now, I know they've had extraordinary challenges standing up as Secretariat. I understand that. And at more than one meeting, as I have sat with my retired admiral and retired general friends from DHS trying to explain to them how state and local government works in the United States of America. I've tried to preface my remarks with the observation that everything I say, I say with love. Please don't get your feelings hurt. I'm not trying to be mean to you. But this is what we need. This is what we're doing. These are our capacities. Do you understand? Um, I would say the last eight years has answered that question for me rather resoundingly. And I'm kind of hoping 
that among those of you who are still here is somebody who will be listened to by the incoming administration because you will be repeating remarks that I first made in 2002 when I thought I had credibility as the veteran of the Pentagon. 2003, 2004, I thought I had credibility as the veteran of the Pentagon and the person responsible for a 10,000-person secretariat that included the National Guard, emergency management, the state police, all of our grant disbursements, working for a governor who had coordinated security at the first 9-11 national special security event, Mitt Romney, who had been in charge of the Olympics in Salt Lake City. I thought our combined expertise might, in fact, be listened to. And he was a Republican. So I figured, better still. Okay? We're really going to get listened to. Um, No. And so what we were trying to be heard was we are more than fire trucks and command vehicles. That the capacity of local and state government to be first preventers is greater than the entire federal government's capacity for any threat that is located in the United States or endemic to the United States. I get the whole international relations thing. But the challenge is there's more cops in the Chicago Police Department than the FBI. There are 700,000 local law enforcement agencies, local law enforcement officers. And the notion that Hani Hanjour and all of those terrorists lived in northern Virginia, the notion that all the terrorists that seized hijacked planes in, uh, in New York City and in Boston were from those metropolitan areas, the idea that the blind cleric lived and worked in Jersey City in a storefront mosque on the second floor at Journal Square, that's stuff local guys find out. And the great irony is that the federal government, for close to six years, poured millions of dollars into developing local police departments' capacity to engage in something called community policing. And what was the idea behind community policing? That police departments could not afford any longer to be disconnected professionals from their indigenous populations. That they had to connect with those communities in ways that use problem-solving tactics to to solve systemic neighborhood problems and develop relationships based on trust with all of our minority and emerging communities. During those years, thousands of police departments basically broke off diplomatic relations with INS so that we could basically service populations of people who were being victimized criminally by organized crime, by domestic violence, by simple mugging, stabbings, and shootings, but were deterred from cooperating with local law enforcement because of fear of their immigration status. And so we burrowed into those communities. We made inroads in those communities. We learned about those communities. We developed trust, and they would tell us about drugs, and they would tell us about organized crime, and they would be witnesses about crimes perpetrated against them. Suddenly, none of that mattered. And by the time I was the Secretary of Public Safety, and one of my bailiwicks was presiding over all of the grants that came to us from Homeland Security and the criminal justice, I saw something very interesting happen. All my community policing grants turned into fire trucks. And over the course of the next five years, Homeland Security became the monster that ate criminal justice. And major city after major city was running out of cops, but you can't tie our cops with Homeland Security money because that's got nothing to do with Homeland Security. City after city began to lose traction on their crime rates, while nonetheless they could show you in their garages some beautiful pieces of machinery. And I will say to you, some terrific vocabulary tests. 
Over the course of four years, the vocabulary lessons I've had from the Department of Homeland Security on Tier 1, Tier 2, Tier 3, and Tier 4, NIMS training, has been just wonderful. And I thank God they weren't there at the Pentagon because they probably would have closed us up because we did incident command wrong, I found out. But the point is, we have not been part of the discussion or conversation or development of a strategy. And so what's happened is you have a place like New York City that basically has its own foreign policy, and I don't mind it. Los Angeles is developing its own foreign policy. When I was the secretary in Massachusetts, we developed something called the I-95 corridor, which was every city from Boston to Miami basically becoming our own information-sharing network and devising collaborative strategies on how we would learn from each other if we needed to engage in prevention activities dealing with homeland security issues. What we have found over the course of many, many years, and this has come from conversations we've had with British police. I've, I've had a number of conversations with my British police partners, all of them paid with money other than homeland security money, um, but all of them about the fact that most of the inroads made against the IRA or the PLO or other terrorist groups almost always started with law enforcement investigations of fairly uh, uh, routine criminal behavior. And we found time and time again that whether it was cigarette bootlegging or liquor smuggling or counterfeit good making, identity theft, credit card theft, or the victimization of uh, communities that, uh, that share the same demographics as the, uh, as, the, as the terrorists, it started out as an investigation of crime that ultimately led to leads that uh, took us overseas. Now, this capacity exists. It's a capacity that is, I think, an extraordinarily powerful one given the natural American vulnerability to acts of terrorism. Now, one of my great frustrations in all of this year is the fact that we've never had the national conversation about what it means to be this society subjected to terrorist acts in furtherance of causes that come from either inside the United States, like Oklahoma City, or imported overseas. Here's the national conversation. We have invented the most open, diverse, free society in world history that values privacy and has taken it as an article of faith that law enforcement must be structurally inefficient as a preserver of our freedoms. And so we have 17,000 law enforcement jurisdictions. We value privacy. We value an open society in which the vast majority of our critical infrastructure is in private hands. We have an invented a society vulnerable to acts of terrorism. Now, is the conversation among Americans who are treated like adults to be, what next? What do we accept? What are we willing to give up to keep what we've got? What level of vulnerability are we willing to endure? And who is our role model? London during the Blitz or Chicken Little? Well, clearly it's become Chicken Little. Because immediately now, I mean, again, and this is the, this is the fault of the, demo, the, the, the political classes, not the poor guys and gals who tried to put together DHS. The conversation went from apathy to hysteria. And do you remember the airways being populated constantly by the latest expert who had, who had come up with a hypothesis of the latest incredible threat that would kill us all, about which we could do nothing, we were totally unprepared? Do you remember those? It was one a week. We've got a room full of smart guys here. I bet some of you have given those lectures. 
All you need is one terrorist with one ounce of this particular type of chemical, and it'll wipe out New York City, and we're not ready to deal with it. I feel like I'm listening to Harold Hill and the Music Man, okay, except we didn't get uniforms. What we did get was an extraordinary amount of money spent defensively, as though all those admirals and, jad- all those admirals and generals in DHS never read their Clauschwitz. He who defends everything defends nothing. Now, while I was secretary, I had this wonderful experience with the first iteration of federal money, and it gives you some idea of the mindset. We got our first $32 million grant from the federal government, and the strings on it were this. It was an equipment grant in March of 2003, right after we took office. The strings on the grant were this. I had to commit 80% of that funding within 45 days of receipt. Okay? Then I would be permitted to spend the 20% planning money. Yes. Wonderland. Now, what we did in Massachusetts was try to, like, make some sense of this craziness. So we made it, believe it or not, a competitive grant process. It was never happened before. The legislature was hysterical. We didn't give everybody 10 cents based on their population. But we said, okay, here are the standards. You can compete for this money provided you've got a memorandum of understanding and agreement of mutual aid with identifiable partners. And those mutual aid partners have agreed as to how they would spend this money if we gave it to them. Now, that $32 million went out to 16 basically seat-of-the-pants Homeland Security regions, which we would later turn into five regions plus our UASI. But every nickel we spent in Massachusetts after that was based on a threat, risk, and vulnerability analysis. And that's what's been missing all too often, is that notion of what are we spending money on? What is the threat? Not just what's the vulnerability, what's the threat? Now, I'd like to know what the threat is, except every time I change jobs, I've got to get another security clearance, and I usually end up giving up getting security clearances, so I probably miss some really important information along the way. And I'll share with you a story. About a week after the attack on the Pentagon, I had some very nice guy from the JTTF come in and give me a whole bunch of background check information. I said, what's this? He says, that's your clearance information. You've got to fill it out. Why? Well, so they'll tell you stuff. Now, there's still smoke rising from the Pentagon, right? I'm saying, wait a minute. You're trying to tell me if this happens again, they're not going to tell me until I fill out the paperwork. Well, that was all fine. And I went to Massachusetts and I get another pile of paper. Well, I got the other thing. And no, 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 no. That's you got to do it again. Okay. And then when I left that job, I found out that that security clearance, which is a Homeland Security clearance, didn't count for the FBI clearance. I haven't filled out those papers yet. So at any rate, One of the frustrations, obviously, for us in this business is we spent so much time classifying information and getting clearances for people, we're not spending enough time declassifying information, so you don't need a bloody clearance to get it, all right? Because let's face it, if you get a secret clearance, are they really going to tell you secret stuff? Okay, no, not really, all right? So it's kind of like fraternity pledging. You know, I got my clearance. Okay, I'm now in the club. But, but, you know, stepping back from it is that... (laughs) The frustration that I am sharing with you, hopefully in an amusing but also instructive way, is the frustration that is shared among my colleagues. Uh, Later this month, I'll be meeting with the major city chiefs, of which I'm a member, 50 biggest cities in the country, okay? They've put together a series of about 12 points on homeland security. This is 2009 now. What are we looking for? We're looking for more declassified information and less of a mania about security clearances. We're looking to be partners in the development of a homeland security strategy that takes into consideration our unique capabilities 
and, dare I say, expertise when it comes to dealing with these incidents. Because let me, let me just tell you something very briefly, because the Q&A may be the best part. When we are dealing with crime in Milwaukee, and we are working it hard, I've been there a year. This year, we just reported, I was there all of 2008, we had the lowest number of homicides since 1985. And the important thing is, because all homicides are not equal, not all of them are preventable, the African-American homicide rate for young men between the ages of 16 and 29 was dropped by 65% in that year. Now, we worked it hard. We worked it with deployments. We worked it with connections to neighborhoods, and we worked it with crime analysis constantly every single day. What do we do in crime analysis? We look for links. We match up names. We do link analysis of every homicide and every aggravated assault with a gun. You'd be amazed if some guys were the witnesses to six different homicides. What does that mean? What do we know about that guy? Let's find out. All right? What am I doing? I'm doing intelligence analysis. And at the Pentagon at 9-11, every single thing the fire department and police department did was core mission stuff. I remember everybody's eyes were big as saucers when we got there. But what was the fire department doing? They were doing a plane crash, a building collapse, and a fire. And they stayed focused on their core mission. They didn't have a panic attack because it was terrorists. And they saved lives and contained the fire. What did the police department have to do? We had to do crowd control. We had to do access and egress control. We had to do traffic control. Since the Marine Corps Marathon starts, and starts there every year, we knew how to seal off the Pentagon. We had to do sniper suppression. And we did evidence collection. We did our core mission. And the core mission of those protective services in the police business, that preventive service, are still there and are still the elements of a successful crime control strategy, which are the elements of a successful homeland security strategy. Community engagement with new and emerging communities, developing relationships of trust, because people tell things to people they trust, analyzing our crime information, looking for patterns and trends and anomalies, and sharing information with partners who can deal with those aspects of the threat that are beyond our, beyond our jurisdictional lines or beyond our capabilities. Now, those ingredients are all still there. And what I'm hoping will take place in the next few years is a genuine adult conversation between the federal agencies theoretically responsible for homeland security and the state and local government agencies that are providing it. Thank you. Thank you. Matt? Chief, you're, uh, you're my president, Chief. Um, I, before Matt starts, I, uh, I forgot to tell you, because I know he's not going to mention it, but Matt has a really great book coming up in uh, June 2009 called Homeland Security and Federalism, Protecting America from Outside the Beltway. Matt? Uh, thank you. Thank, thank you for having me. Uh, what's that? Get me an autographed copy. Oh, well, maybe, Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's hard to follow up with what Ed said because he says it from experience, which most of us actually lack, uh, and Ed has all too much of uh, some days, I'm sure, which is probably why he's prematurely gray. Uh, but it's also funny. My daughters would love that you called me a czar. After they saw American Tale, I, I tried to explain to them it was about the Bolshevik Revolution and the cats were the Bolsheviks, and 
So they call people Bolsheviks. And so and it's fitting is that they always try to overthrow the czar. So it, it all would work out nicely. But um, and, and Ed's right. I was about, trying at the time. Yeah, I know. And, and, you know, Ed's right about his criticism of the department. I mean, I was in charge of the grant programs, not the 2003 uh, period, but but it, eventually I, you know, by a process of elimination, everyone left and I was left there. Uh, I was in charge of the grants for a while. And we we tried to do some reforms that gave states and locals m- more voice and tried to put some sense into the spending. And I had really failed at that. And that's that's something I have to actually, you know, live with. But, you know, you, you do try to, to fight the bureaucracy, even though uh, you're part of it. And sometimes you fail. And in those cases, we failed. Uh, in terms of protecting America, you know, the way I try to see it, and I'm a bear of very little brain, so I try to see things very simply. I look at the Constitution first, and I think who has the constitutional role and responsibility for the primary position on these issues? And, you know, I think in a broad brushstroke sense, the way it works out for me is, you know, border security, um, citizenship and in, in, in presence in the U.S., those types of issues, uh, international, uh, the movement of goods and people, um, interstate commerce, uh, in national asset security. I mean, those types of things properly constitutionally have a federal role, federal lead, where the federal government should take the primary position. But but there are other issues like preparedness and resiliency, disaster management, uh, interior enforcement and illegal immigration. And I don't just mean the law enforcement side, but also the stuff that legislatures and, and cities can do without having any law enforcement component to it at all, as well as counterterrorism, I see those things as really things that should be have a primary role by state and local governments, not inside Washington, and, and for lots of reasons, and I'll tell you about those. In about two or three weeks, we'll have a report coming out from Heritage. Uh, I spent way too much time looking at 111 separate jurisdictions, uh, 26 states in the District of Columbia, and within the 26 states, 85 cities and counties. Um, and the eligibility to get into the report was – you had to be a, a city that had been designated an urban area security initiative, one of the big U.S. federal grants, uh, Homeland Security grants, that had received at least $15 million from 03 to 07. Use that as a cutoff because that, to me, was a metric of the relative risk that you had been deemed to have. And so if you were one of those cities, you made it in the report. And then if you're one of those cities, I looked at both your city data as well as your county data and looked at all the Homeland Security spending, general appropriation funds, not fees, wanted to try to truly look at how much state legislatures, city councils, and county commissioners were actually appropriating out of their general revenue, money that they had competing funds for, right? Hey, you've got health care, you've got transportation, you've got education priorities. What are, tough decisions are they making? How much did they appropriate as compared to federal money that went into the, that particular jurisdiction as well? And, and here are some of the kind of brief findings, what we found. Uh, over the period of 2000, 2007, if you look at the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice, total spend, total appropriation uh, from Congress for those years, it was about $332 billion. So $332 billion. Uh, for those 111 jurisdictions I looked at, uh, that to their total appropriation for those, that same period is about $220 billion. So about 66% of the total federal spending, and a lot of that federal spending didn't go toward the things that we would consider homeland security. Uh, but nonetheless, if you think about it, the other thousands of jurisdictions I didn't look at, I'm quite confident that total spending far exceeds the federal spending in homeland security over the period of, of 2000 to 2007. If you look at just the grant aspect, the money that people like Ed received from Washington, totaled about $23 billion. So $220 billion to about $23 billion. Uh, not a lot of money uh, in that. If you look at kind of yearly, breaking down on a yearly basis, the most money that federal 
funds played in a state in a given year compared to the state and local funds was in 2004 in North Carolina, where it represented a whopping 17.7% of the Homeland Security funds for that state for that year. Uh, the lowest, it was 0.1% uh, in 2001 in the state of Arizona. New York City, not surprisingly, not once in that eight-year period did the federal Homeland Security grants, and keep in mind, New York City was the highest recipient of, of UASI funds, not once in that period of time did the federal funds make up more than 5% of the total Homeland Security funds for the city of New York. Uh, that tells you how much of a commitment they were making to, to protecting their, their citizens. Uh, the eight-year average was, was uh, for cities that had, were at that 5% or less, or for states at that 5% or less, you saw New York, California, Florida, and Illinois. Never represented more than 5% in those states, and those were the big recipients of the funds. California received the most federal, federal funds, about 150 or $1.5 billion. That's it. The most money that went uh, to any place was California, which got about $1.5 billion over that period of time, which represented a whopping 3.3% of all Homeland Security funds for the state of California during that period of time. And that does not include all those cities and counties I did not look at as that are in California, uh, some of which were UASIs that received funds like Fresno. I didn't count Fresno, Riverside, places like that. Uh, and then you have the, 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 the lowest amount of money was the state of Hawaii, which had gotten a, about $115 million bucks from Homeland Security over that period of time. The reason I tell you this is to put in perspective that what we have created in this country today is the federal tail that is wagging the state dog. And that just doesn't quite make sense to some of us who were at the federal level, saw that, and it didn't seem to make sense. People like Ed who've actually had to live it uh, in a real, real world way, where it just doesn't make sense to have so much, so much happening in this 10 by, what used to be 10 by 10 square mile thing called the District of Columbia, have so much power and influence over, frankly, a very little amount of money that they actually spend in compared to state and local governments on a day-to-day, year-to-year basis. Uh, over that period of time, law enforcement and fire service, on average, increased their spending about 3 to 6% per year. So, again, you see that investment being made to fight crime, do the types of things that, that Ed was talking about in terms of community policing. What you also found, what we found, was while emergency management funds went up during those period of time, it was a paltry amount of money. Uh, 68% of the jurisdictions we looked at in a year-to-year basis were putting under a million dollars a year into emergency management, under a million bucks. Those are the big cities. That's the states. Under a million bucks a year they would put into it. And I'll get to why that was the case, or at least why I think that was the case. When you talk about people, resources, right, who are the, who are the folks that are going to do all this work? You know, Ed mentioned it. The FBI has about 25,000 agents for the entire country. ICE, Immigration and in, in, in Customs Enforcement, has about 15,000 agents across the country. And then you add in FEMA folks and other people you know, here and there, you end up getting about another 10,000. So all told, your federal folks who are kind of out in the states represent about 50,000 people to protect us. State and locals, in addition to the 700,000 local, they're also state law enforcement. It's about, one point, uh, about, a, about a million law enforcement officers at the state and local level across the country. You add in fire service, emergency management, and other folks, you end up getting about another 1.2 million, which means you've got 50,000 feds and about 2.2 million state and local folks that are involved in the Homeland Security uh, mission. Seems to me, once again, you have this federal tail that wags the state dog. And again, doesn't seem to make sense for people like me who look at this issue. 
Now, when you talk about who has the knowledge to do the work, I mean, Ed talked about it, and he's absolutely right. I mean, you know, if you look at the history of law enforcement, it's not like they don't know how to do what they do. It, it developed as a doctrine. It developed as a, as a profession over the course, frankly, of thousands of years. I mean, the way we do policing today start first dates back to the Romans and how they set up their, you know, Roman, uh, the you know, city of Rome and how it accorded, you know, broke it up into 16 districts that then they had folks that did both law enforcement and fire service if Rome caught fire, which we know it did occasionally. And so this is something that's been around for quite a long time. And so they use things like community policing, intelligence policing, broke, broken windows theory. Report just came out out of Sweden where they, they validated this concept of broken windows policing. So this is, all this stuff is going on, has been going on for years and years and years. These are the folks that they walk the beat. They patrol. They know the people in their community. They're the ones most likely to figure out and sense that something just isn't right. I mean, FBI agents are great. I have great respect for the FBI, but they, they don't walk the beat. They don't have that investigative, everyday community policing gut that is developed at the local and state level that folks like Ed and his, his people have, have worked on. You know, you think about things like uh, uh, immigration, and so many people say, oh, that's a federal thing. States should do absolutely nothing. I mean, there's just no basis for that. The Constitution does not provide that. In fact, the Founding Fathers are pretty clear that the federal, the federal government had a role, but so did state and local, local uh, uh, governments. And in fact, September 17th, this past year, the Ninth Circuit, which is the most liberal circuit in America, gets reversed more by the Supreme Court than any other circuit, upheld Arizona's uh, Worker Employment Act, which essentially said Arizona companies should, could not hire illegal immigrants. It has nothing to do with law enforcement, but that was what Arizona was doing to deal with an issue. It was taken up to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit said not only is it constitutional, but the requirement to use the E-Verify system, they man- you know, mandated in Arizona, whereas the federal government has made it a, a, a voluntary issue, mandated it. They said they absolutely have a right to mandate that just because the federal government's only doing a voluntary doesn't mean the states can't do a mandatory. And finally, there's a case way back called DeCanis versus, versus v. Baca, which people thought the, the Immigration Reform Act of 1986 essentially overturned that case and made it irrelevant. And the Ninth Circuit even said, not the case, still good law. And that case was unequivocal that states and local governments have every, every right to be involved in the, the, the uh, uh, management of illegal immigrants inside their borders. I mean, this idea that you could have somebody in a city or a state that essentially is, the state is powerless to do anything about just doesn't have any constitutional basis by and large. When you get to preparedness and resiliency, those types of issues, I mean, the, the, you know, Ed raised the grant issue, and he's at, he was absolutely right about this. We, you know, you look at the amount of money that's frankly not that much. I mean, you, every year the grants come out, there's lots of hubbubaloo about who got what and where it went and all that stuff. But if you step back and look how much money we're talking about, it actually isn't that much money compared to what states and, and locals are spending in this area every year. But yet we spend all this time talking about it. And what we still don't do is we still don't give the money out based on things that make sense. So where do we lack critical capabilities? Well, we don't know because we haven't, we, the DHS has not done a capability assessment since 2003. So we spent all this money and have no idea what we actually bought with it. We bought lots of fire trucks, and I think we bought some good turnout gear, and we bought all these great things. And there was a huge overemphasis to response assets for the first three or four years, and we neglected prevention entirely, which was stupid. But, you know, sometimes, you know, we responded to 9-11, so we spent our time on response and forgot about the whole prevent piece for a while. And then we started doing prevention. But then prevention, we started doing things that don't make sense either. So we're going to build all these fusion centers. 
Well, they compete with JTTFs at times. And then we have DHS that wants to own state and local information because but then the FBI also has state and local and has had it for many, many years. So now we have these two-headed monsters that like to fight each other of who owns state and local law enforcement information sharing. And state and local are looking at them going, can we just have one of you dysfunctional people to work with instead of two? And so we don't figure out ways to get deconflict these things and give these guys a very clear path which which they can deal with us. That kind of stuff just continues to baffle me, and, and I don't understand why we can't solve it. We've got to solve it because it actually is a life-and-death situation. When you get to disaster management, and I'll spend a little bit of time here because the numbers are, are, are the, the most uh, uh, real, I guess. From 1954 to about 1972, um, the highest number of declarations we had declared uh, out of FEMA in a year was 29. 29 declarations. Not very many, okay? In 1972 to 1979, that average doubled, okay? So we doubled the number of declarations during the uh, essentially uh, Carter, Nixon, Carter, Ford uh, year. 1974, something happened. A group called the National Emergency Management Agency founded itself here in Washington to advocate for state and local emergency management. Not surprisingly, starting in 1980, you started seeing an uptick in FEMA declarations for disasters. From 1980 to 1992, uh, you had about, um, let's see here, we ranged from a low of 16 declarations to a high of 53 declarations. We averaged about 33 per year, okay? And of those, though, of those 33 declarations uh, per year, there were 19, in that 12-year period, there were 19 disasters that had, that had cost over a billion dollars, okay? So $19 billion or more disasters in that 12-year time frame. On average, th- it cost us about $10.6 billion per disaster of those 19, and about 948 people, believe it or not, on average died during those 19 disasters. Half of those 19 were hurricanes and earthquakes, which some of us would consider possibly catastrophic. The rest were not. The rest were not. The, uh, in 1988, something else happened. Stafford Act was passed. The Robert T. Stafford Act was passed where the federal government then took a 75% cost share for a declaration. So now if a declaration is declared, the feds are going to pay up to 75% or more of the cost of that disaster. So, of course, that creates a wonderful incentive for our state and local brethren. And so starting in 1993 to 2000, during the Clinton presidency, we went from 33 declarations a year on average for the previous 12 years up to 88 a year. So you had this massive spike now in in declarations per year. Not surprisingly, in the election year of 1996, we reached the still-standing record of 157 declarations in a year. Can't figure out why there were so many declarations during an election year. During the Clinton period of time, they had, he'd end up that eight years, there were 707 declarations that were declared by FEMA. In the previous year, from 1954 to 1992, there had only been a 1,137. So almost caught up with the previous 30 or so years of declarations. I give you, gave you the $19 billion, and during the Clinton years, there were $33 billion or more disasters. Of those, though, the average cost was only $4.3 billion, so about $6 billion less on average than the ones before. So these are much smaller disasters. And instead of 948 deaths on average, it was only about 61 deaths. So, again, it's a much smaller uh, number of disasters. And of the, of the 33, only seven were earthquakes and hurricanes. The rest were all stuff like a drought, a flood, a severe storm. So we really changed, started seeing this defining disaster down, as I like to say, of what we consider catastrophic. 
So then we get, I work for the president, so I feel like I can criticize him uh, legitimately. But uh, we get, you know, big government's not supposed to be good, all those things. And in, and in fact, I looked at the numbers, got them to this morning. During the Bush years, we actually declared over 1,000 declarations. So 300 more than the Clinton years, almost as much as the entire 1954 to 1992 time frame, uh, averaging 129 declarations a year. So we went from 33 to 88 to 129. If we keep on this pace, by 2016, we will be at 201 declarations a year, which will be about one every 1.8 days. We're now at one every 2.5 days. So we're doing a fantastic job there. Of those disasters, there are 20 disasters that were billion-dollar disasters, in the vast majority, I can't give you averages on this one because so much of it was Katrina. I mean, it just it swallows every other. But the point is, the ones that weren't Katrina were, again, very small compared to those, those other ones. And what you see is this trend. For the first term of the Bush administration, the average was 115 declarations. Katrina, second term, 144. Just, again, this, just even within that, you see this spike going up. And so when you think about emergency management, remember I mentioned how the spending is so little most 68% of the jurisdictions are a million dollars or less a year on emergency management. Well, guess what? Are you surprised by that? I mean, when we keep federalizing and Washington's going to pay more and more, state and locals aren't stupid. They're going to say, great, I can spend that money on transportation, education, health care. So they defund those elements. And so state and locals are getting less and less prepared to deal with routine disasters. And at the same time, FEMA is spending every 2.8 days with something new. So they're not, they have very little time to prepare for the truly catastrophic. So great. We're in this great no-man's land where no one's really doing what they should be doing. And to me, when I think through these issues of who should be the role, we need to figure a way to get Washington out of this a bit and get mayors and governors, even those who don't want it, because some of them don't want it, accountability and power so that they can marshal those resources, and they've got a whole lot of them, and do the things that they're good at and take the accountability with it. Don't be afraid of it. It's good to have accountability. We like accountability. So we've got to figure out how we do that, and, and hopefully we will, because it's, if, if federalizing isn't going to make us safer, it never has. I'd rather put my family security in Ed's hands than in my old hands a few years ago. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Back to the dwarf position. So now it's time for a question and answer. And uh, please wait for the microphone. Well, first I think... Uh, Bob, you had a question for uh, the chief. I have a question for you, Ed. Matt talked about the, the legal right for states and local governments to be involved in enforcing immigration issues. And just because we have the legal right to do something does not necessarily mean that it's a wise course. And there are those who have argued that by virtue of taking late state and, or local law enforcement into the immigration enforcement function, you've lost access to communities that create other kinds of problems or are otherwise victimized. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on the trade-off there. Uh, First, I'll start with just a practical observation. There's a lot of demagoguery on this issue, both from the standpoint of those who would control immigration and those who are immigration, immigrant activists, okay? Um, you know, we recently uh, adjusted our policies in uh, Milwaukee to uh, make it clear that uh, we were not an arm of INS, that we were very much uh, engaged with the neighborhoods because our duty is to protect those who live there. 
while at the same time making it clear that we would cooperate with INS when it came to, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, aliens who were felons. I mean, we've got some real bad guys that happen to be illegal immigrants. (laughs) They don't get special treatment. They're not a protected class. They're not an endangered species. And so I feel if you're a gun-toting gang member who shot somebody um, and we can get you uh, deported, we'll happily do so. But we are not going to routinely do it as a, as a point of doing business. Now, the policy was very clear. We're not just enforcing immigration laws. We're not going to ask what the status is of somebody we're interviewing at a crime scene and so on. Um, I still had, you know, people from the advocacy community wanting to beat me up for somehow, you know, how dare I want to deport, you know, gang members who had committed murder. You know, what's the next step? So, you know, with a, with, a, with a disclaimer, there's a lot of demagoguery to go along on all sides of this issue. Um, I would say your, your your general observation is correct. We don't local law enforcement doesn't want to get dragooned into the politics of immigration enforcement. First of all, who's kidding who? One thing I learned a long time ago is that the entire United States of America, there's something on the order of 12,000 detention beds that the INS has for an illegal immigrant. Okay, and last I heard, there were what's the last how many million? 12 million undocumented nice folks from other places here, whatever the euphemism of the day is, okay? So 12 million nice folks from someplace else without papers, 12,000 beds. Guess what? Who's kidding who? All right, so local law enforcement's got no, you know, objective reason to play immigration enforcement. And you're smart not to because, as I say, these folks are witnesses, they're victims, and they're informants, and why do I want people who might be able to tip me off to an organized crime condition, a homicide, or a terrorist to not talk to me? All right? And so that's the distinction we've got to draw. And I think uh, every major city that I know has pretty much drawn the line that way. Thank you. Questions? Uh, microphone? Do you have the microphone? Well, do you want to go right there? Please identify yourself on question. Yeah, can, okay. Uh, I'm Mark Randall from the Congressional Research Service. Uh, my question's for Chief Flynn. Uh, one of the uh, areas that you said that would be very helpful for state and locals is to get more and particularly less sensitive or declassified information intelligence from the federal government. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as you probably know, there's been a couple of initiatives in the last year or so, uh, largely pushed by Congress, but that um, DHS has been pushing uh, for state <coughs> and local fusion centers and posting DHS officers at those centers, and then also the Interagency Threat uh, Analysis Coordination Group at the National Counterterrorism Center, where it would actually bring state and local law enforcement people on a detail to NCTC to review intelligence product and then see if they couldn't help um, push the right kinds of products down at lower classification levels to state and local. So I just wanted to ask the question, in your experience, um, how is that going? Is that working? Is there progress? Uh, does there need to be more? What's, what's your thoughts? Thanks. Um, two ways, and I'll, 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 you know, sometimes you've got too, too much experience to be brief, but I'll do my best. Um, I think the goal is admirable. I think there's still far too many choke points because despite the fact that it's been um, eight years now, nearly eight years, no one seems to be willing to grasp the nettle and say, let's take a look at why we do um, uh, security clearances. What purpose are they serving? What level of security clearance is necessary? Why does a police chief need a new security clearance when he changes police chief jobs? No one will just ask the bureaucratic question. We seem to think we can bureaucratize the terrorists into submission. Okay? We can't. 
All right. And every impediment that we erect in our own way makes it harder to be effective. And over an obsession, a mania for security clearances and a mania on classified information is not making us better prepared. And so what we keep asking for is we don't care about where you got the information. We want to know methods. We want to know means. We want to know threats. We want to know vulnerabilities. We want to know risks. Communicate that information for us. You know, one of the things the major city chiefs are advocating for is the nationwide standards for suspicious activity reporting. So every police department fills out a form and computerizes and send it where it needs to be with the same metrics so we can differentiate the people who have a thing about watching airplanes land from people who maybe are trying to figure out where to put a man pad, which I always thought was one of the funniest things for a weapon I ever heard, but... I thought it was a perverted thing for the first couple of years until I got my security clearance and they explained it to me. Um, But, I mean, I I really, you know, those those are the challenges for us. I mean, if, 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 you know, congressional people could take a look and say, okay, folks, can we please just take a step back and look at this business about classifications, all right, and those thing about security clearances, what can we do to streamline it? and quit using as the default position, we've always done it this way, or the default position, well, what if one person someplace did this, okay? I know a lot of people with top-secret clearances that have been tried for, for treason. I don't know any police chief that's ever been tried for treason, all right? So, you know, some of those basic things need to be reexamined, all right? We just can't process our way out of it. We've got to start questioning some fundamental, longstanding assumptions about information. Thank you. Here, the front row. First of all, I'd like to, I'm Deb McKern, GOP USA. I'd like to thank the the panel for um, such a direct, um, what I would say finally direct um, opportunity to express that it is about common sense. It is about um, getting things back to rather than top down, bottom up. Those of us who do have experience in the field, be it fortunate or unfortunate, I too have experience at both the the county, state, and federal levels from numerous um, opportunities of of work, but also was in Louisiana when Katrina hit, was in Iowa the summer when the floods hit. There is nothing like that direct... Where are you spending your next vacation? Uh, (laughs) Because I'm not going there. (laughs) Well, Louisiana was family. Iowa is where I was living, but now I'm in... Okay, of Wisconsin. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> we should get ready. Yeah. Um, point being also that you know that the conference I know the past couple of days has emphasized that um, that we want to um, so so to speak downplay you know that terrorism has been overrated. Simply put, but what if? So my point being that I am finding that it is incredibly important, and, and yes, I know there are procedures and protocols, and like you mentioned with the NIMS, um, there is some frustration there that even though some of us have a lot of common experience, you still need to get some of these certifications for people to listen to you, and even then they still don't. But my concern is ongoing for bringing people together that do have that common sense experience to, to give them opportunity to express their um, like the critical thinking that they needed to use during those moments in time. What, what is being put into play? What opportunities are there to bring together 
um, those with the experience that are at the local levels and at the federal level, but it truly is about getting things back into the hands of those at the local level that have experienced those things and also the ongoing um, planning for equipment <coughs> more at the local level for those things, not just waiting for the government to show up. For example, in Iowa, we dug in right away, and, and, and it turned out to be a blessing that everyone had to be out at the EOC together because everything in downtown was flooded. So every state and local person in any office, we were all at the EOC together, which was wonderful. You could walk across the room have three people collaborate, once everyone went back into their offices, once the floodwaters receded, now you're back into just typical human nature of people being territorial and competition, and it took you three days to get people to come together on um, when everybody was in the EOC together. It took 20 minutes. It took three days. But to bring all of that together, main point being is what are we doing about the common sense of the local control experience so that that plays into procedure and policy and it's not just about it's not just about our um, politicians you know saying this is about me getting elected again this is about the common sense of that local control and experience are there things in play for that my guess is nothing but I hope so um, I think We need to, I mean, Homeland Security is a very difficult issue. And part of the reason it's such a difficult issue is that unlike in defense where we have a secretary of defense who is the go-to guy for essentially everything defense-related, the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security is not the go-to guy for Homeland Security. Homeland Security responsibilities are distributed widely. And um, we think about the worst job to have is one where, in the public's mind, you're going to be held accountable for success across a whole lot of stuff over which you have no control. That's a very unenviable position, but in some respects, that's the secretary's position. I mentioned viable concepts of operation. We don't have those things yet because they take time to develop. It takes dialogue. It takes people sitting down and, and talking this stuff through. And after 9-11 and the Homeland Security Act, I think a lot of effort went into meeting statutory deadlines. This will be done by this time. Um, a lot of effort went into that rather than into thinking about what it was we really needed to do. And I think now, with some distance, hopefully we're going to have some time to start dealing with some of these kinds of issues. Standing up a department of the federal government is extremely difficult. You know, the components prepare their budgets, but the department doesn't just take them and staple them together and throw them to OMB. There's a whole lot of stuff that has to go on there. DHS had none of that. It had no policies, no procedures, no people who understood how to do a lot of the things that were required. DHS has been um, learning how to be a department at this, while it was trying to deal with some very politically difficult issues, things like uh, Katrina, the immigration reform debacle, uh, Dubai uh, world ports, uh, 
a number of things kept coming up that distracted the leadership's attention from leading to dealing with the crisis du jour, you know, the hair on fire moments. Hopefully, with a new team not wedded to defending history, the department will be able to make some progress and slow down a little bit, think some things through. It should be ready, aim, fire, not ready, fire, aim. And with input from people like uh, Chief Flynn and others uh, like that, we should be able to make some progress. But it's not going to happen overnight. This is still very immature as a national discipline. Guys? All right, three quick points. I have nothing but empathy for Department of Homeland Security. I think I think the terrorists have been the uh, adversary. I think Congress and the Department of Justice have been the enemy. And so that's clearly, you know, uh, been brought its own level of, you know, uh, of difficulties for them. The second thing is they didn't invent the Department of Defense until after the war was won. We muddled through World War II with an ineffective bureaucratic apparatus. All right. And maybe we should have waited until we came up with this particular apparatus. Third thing is I'm reminded of the famous uh, management uh, joke, the uh, three envelopes. Many people have, have a lot. Majority of people heard the three envelopes. You know, a, a person takes over a job. Let's say it's the Milwaukee Police Department or the Department of Homeland Security, finds three envelopes in the in the uh, in the desk. And the, the person leaving the office says, uh, when things go wrong, open the envelopes in sequence one, two and three. And sure enough, a few months later, something goes wrong. Open first envelope. Blame your blame your predecessors. Well, we think we saw that from 2001 until the standing up of DHS, didn't we? Whether we blame the predecessors. Okay, next crisis or calamity occurs, reorganize. I give you the birth of DHS. And finally, when the third calamity occurs, prepare three envelopes. (laughs) I would offer the envelopes are being prepared as we speak all over town. And I think it it goes to the heart of of the problem. The bureaucratic imperatives came first. I mean, I was, was, uh, you know, I mean... I don't get any credit for happening to be the police chief at Arlington on that day. I didn't do anything extraordinary, heroic, or particularly interesting. I presided over an emergency response. But the point is, I never went to a single meeting with DHS about Homeland Security issues related to state and local police departments, ever. I became Secretary of Public Safety. There's probably about 20 of them nationwide. Other states divide that job up between the adjutant general and the state police superintendent and the corrections commission. One meeting I went to in three years of my colleagues about Homeland Security. Nobody was interested in picking our brains because they had important stuff to do. All right. So our hope is, as those envelopes are being prepared all over town, as my colleague, the captain, just said, one of those envelopes says... Why don't you talk to the folks out there that are, like, spending your money doing the thing? Maybe you'll learn something. Good idea. Matt? Yeah, the only thing I would add is um, I think the answer is no. Nothing's going to change in that. And and I think that's because just the structure of where our government is today, which, I mean, look, a bridge collapses in Minneapolis. We look to Washington. People can't get health care. We look to Washington. Homeland Security happens, we look to Washington. Education failure, Washington, Washington, Washington. We, we forget that innovation has never come from Washington. Whether it's welfare reform, education reform, health care reform, it always comes from state and local governments because they're more flexible, they have more resources, they're more innovative, they're not as bureaucratic, they do have bureaucracy, but they're not way off in the distant land. And so until we figure out a way to get start getting 
power coming out of Washington and back to mayors and governors and city police chiefs and fire chiefs. Uh, they're going to continue to talk like they care, talk that they're going to listen, but fundamentally they're going to still want to ride roughshod and own the ball, just the way it works. So I have uh, several questions from um, upstairs. Um, where do you see the information gap to be? Who is passing on the information and who are theoretically and who theoretically can mitigate this issue? And then there's another one is, uh, do you think the federal government is making progress with uh, information sharing? Um, I, I know their intentions are honorable. Um, yes, 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 they're making progress. Yeah, I think they are. Okay. Matt? You know, I lost my clearance when I left the department, and I'm not filling that paperwork to get everyone. So, no, I have no idea if they are. What I know is it still tends to be a Fed-driven process. They're demanding, give us this, give us this. They don't share enough with state and locals. Can I add something real quick to that? Yeah. I mean, because I, I, I was a little facile. Here's the thing. People in my position right now are less interested in people sharing with us than knowing what you want from us. Yeah. All right. We've got the assets in place. We are collecting information as part of our crime analysis function. We take thousands of reports a year. We stop people. We question people. You know, we'd like to know more uh, about what standardized ways you want certain types of information with us. And I'm more interested in that right now uh, because I can get to know what I need from watching CNN and, you know, so I have uh, my final. Just, a qu- yeah, just to finish, I think what's more important is if we can figure out a way to make sure that that what Ed has can L.A. can see and what L.A. sees Ed can have, because that's frankly where we're going to be able to connect the real dots, not somewhere inside the beltway. Uh, this my, my question. Should we uh, abolish the uh, federal grants to the states? Hell no. Not until he gets his ear. No, wait, what was the system you got on call? Shh, come on. Come on. No, but of course not. I mean, let, you know, if we have, in fact, a threat to the nation, then it makes sense that national assets be moved around, both financial as well as physical, to better prepare the, the, the country. I mean, no single state. I mean, some states clearly are far less vulnerable to an act of terrorism for Wyoming. a whole wide Wyoming. set of reasons. But it doesn't mean that people you want to find don't might live anywhere. And so, obviously, you know, it's useful to judiciously tie some thoughtful expenditures to risks as well as to threats and help us with standardized methods of identifying and responding but is, to both. Is the money spent this way? I don't think it has been spent anywhere near as thoughtfully as it could be. But once again, the recipients weren't engaged in the discussion. And I mean, everybody here who's ever managed anything knows the people closest to the problem have information you need if you're going to make decisions and spend money wisely. That fundamental precept Never entered into the equation. And yet that's and then, well, what let you me, try to me, put in place. Yeah, because right? we actually did try to do that. I mean, that's one of the things that I tried to do and, and failed. So, dag nabbit. I keep failing at everything. But, you know, what, what, the, the, grants are, the grants are stupid. But a lot of the grant requirements don't come from DHS. I mean, I'll defend DHS. They're Congress. Mm-hmm. Because those bozos think that, oh, if we spread the money sure. enough, we can all do our press release saying I brought this much money to, you know, Shitville, Iowa. And look, aren't I a good guy, right? I mean, that's not the way it should work. We have finite funds, and yet we spread it everywhere. For, for the two big programs, which is the Homeland Security Program and the is Urban Program, time? Yeah, I hope it isn't. But what we need to do is, you know, instead of, you know, when I finally was in charge of the grant program, one of the things I did is I convinced the secretary to say, look, can we cut it down to 35 urban areas instead of 50? I mean, really, there aren't 50 cities where the risk curve is that big. I mean, you hit a certain number and it kind of flatlines. So can't we limit it to 35? And so we did for one year. And then it went 
back up to 46, and then last year they popped it up to 60. And what they did is they just simply said, well, you know what, we're of all, except for four cities, we're going to cut every other city by 3% because we got to pay these other 14 that we added. The only reason they added 14 was because one city that was on the 46 list the year before got bumped to 60 on the risk curve, and so they didn't want to cut them off. So they added 14 more. This is stupid. On the state program, we keep saying, oh, no, no, let's, let's, make, let's make them give it to take 80% of the funds, that's a congressional requirement, and spread it all across the state. Why? I mean, if they don't have what they need by now, tough. We need the states to build the capabilities they need. The urban areas are getting their, the high-risk urban areas are getting the money they need. Let's focus on those two places because, unfortunately, or fortunately, the risk is not everywhere. So we shouldn't act like it is and spread the money everywhere. We tried in 05 to get Ed's say in the thing. We created what was called investment justification, which was him saying to us, here's what I'm going to do with the money so we could then give the money based upon where we had the highest needs. They have essentially ignored that process, that document. They make them fill it out every year, but they then ignore it in the allocation of funds. So I just kind of continue to scratch my head because we tried to put in common sense reform, and it just got totally ignored. Well, thank you very much. I uh, told you it would be a great panel. Uh, please help me to thank our pan- panelists. We have a 15-minute break, and... Uh, Come back and we'll have our last session.